and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Nick, and I'm here today with Percy. Hello. And Todd. Boy, howdy. This week we're talking about stock characters and playbooks and the way that tropes and archetypes can influence gameplay and theater. Uh, so to kick us off, we were inspired by a tweet by Jay Dragon, who is the creator of Possum Creek Games um, and a game designer in general, super cool person. Uh, Jay wrote a Twitter thread that is essentially about how the playbooks and classes and uh, other things of that nature in character creation and TTRPGs sort of define the game's relationship with its world in terms of what it is asking its characters to position themselves uh, in relation to. And some of the examples Jay gives are like uh, in Apocalypse World, um, what tools do you have to survive, uh, things things like that. So to sort of kick us off and examine these playbooks and their, and their relationships with archetypes and tropes and stock characters, we thought we would dive into a few case studies from different games, but first sort of define the value of this sort of practice of stock characters or tropes that you're sort of playing off of in character creation. I think if a stock character is an audience's easy way into the world, then a playbook is the player's way into the world and a way to sort of give themselves a place to work from as they are joining the story and imagining the world and and doing all of that. So the first game that we want to talk about is Thirsty Sword Lesbians, in which uh, so in Thirsty Sword Lesbians, which is a game that is very much about, I would say, character development in relation to other people. Playbooks are delineated by their central emotional conflict. For example, uh, if you have been living your life, or rather, if your character has been living their life connected to one set of values and is in the game exploring what your personal values are as compared to that, maybe you have a past that you regret or you're attempting to forge a new future or you're coming from some kind of isolated community and you're attempting to enter broader society and seeing how that sort of butts up against what you've always known. The the game is really sort of asking you to conceptualize a character in terms of uh, your personal growth and development. Yeah, and this is this one is really interesting to me personally because I have tended to think about stock characters and playbooks in terms of relationship. Um, and Thirsty Sword Lesbians uh, seems to leave th those relationships in terms of other people relatively open uh, in contrast to some of the playbooks we'll talk about next. But what I do like about this and what I think it does very well is it gives you kind of a skeleton of an emotional arc a kind of personal journey for the character to go on that can serve as great fuel for drama and action and you know, a little bit of guidance for your character. Well, a lot of the um, a lot of the moves uh, and mechanics of Thirsty Sword Lesbians, for example, there's a mechanic called Smitten where you can essentially declare that your character is smitten with another character and they, I believe, get a string on you, which is something that you can spend in order to increase your chances of success at doing a certain move. Like a, a lot of the mechanics are about forming relationships with other people in the party and it is sort of framing it very overtly in terms of scenes. And I think positioning the playbook as like, what are you as an individual? What journey are you on? Um, and then going into the relationship building section of the game where there are playbook specific questions that you ask of other people in the party. Um, like recently I played a game of Thirsty Sword Lesbians for Paradigm Academy uh, and I played the Devoted subclass 
And all of my questions were like, who have I saved from some kind of terrible fate? I actually can't think of any of the other ones for that specific subclass at this moment in time. But uh, some of the other questions for like the archetype of like person from an isolated community who enters the world for the first time are like, who in the party is the closest to what you understand as normal? Um, Things like that. Like it's a lot about contextualizing yourself within the context of the party through those relationships. But I like that the seed of it is, yeah, what arc am I embarking upon? Yeah. In in a different vein, Masks um, describes their playbooks as very flexible. For instance, the Nova playbook is about power and how you manage it, but it doesn't mean that the Nova must be a particular kind of character with a particular kind of powers. And then they list a bunch of different like powerful uh, examples, whether you're a mutant or a witch or what have you. The playbooks are primarily about the kind of story the character is involved in, the dramatic issues they're likely to face. Uh, and then, you know, if you have an idea for a certain kind of character, run it by your GM, see if that feels like the right playbook for it. I do personally feel like the playbooks in Masks are very much about archetypes, even the way that they're described from like the protege, the Janus, the delinquent. Um, they're sort of ideas about like how this character will be embodied. Um, there's an idea of like what sort of power this person has, not how they're manifested, but like, are they incredibly strong? Are they uh, using a more like subterfuge kind of uh, ability uh, with the changed? Um, you have a lot of feelings about like incredibly strong characters, whether that's someone like Cyborg um, from Teen Titans, who has been like, augmented um, through cybernetics or someone like Beast or the Hulk um, who have been, you know, gone from one state of being to a different state of being, whether they can change back and forth or not. It doesn't necessarily determine how your powers work or how you'll use them, but it does feel like it slots your backstory into an easy archetype um, to understand what your motivations would be going forward. And so when you're looking at like the doomed um, or the protege, um, there's very clear like either you have a mentor that you are working with and you have been deemed like worthy to become a hero and will follow that path in some way, shape or form. And you'll probably have missteps or with the doomed, there's like a, a very bad fate that awaits you. And in one way or another, like you are striving against fate um, to do what you can before the inevitable happens to you. And these really color the sort of character that you're going to build as they say, like you could try to build any sort of character in any playbook, but it feels like they're looking for a certain kind of relationships and certain kind of character ideas um, with these various archetypes. Yeah, I think one of the things I love about Masks playbooks is that they pull off the it's not exactly a bait and switch, um, but it's a um, it's a surprise, I think, if you're coming from a world uh, that's not so rooted in powered by the apocalypse, because I think a lot of people's first thoughts about a superhero character would be like, what are the powers? Um, you know, like what what are my superheroic abilities? And in a game like, say, Mutants and Masterminds, that is more kind of the focus is like, how powerful are you? What are your superhuman abilities? And in Masks, it's like you said, Todd, it's built into some of the playbooks a little bit, but it's really pretty secondary to the things like you know, if you're a Janus, you have a relationship to normal people who do not know 
like what your superheroic identity is. And if you don't want to do that, then you really can't like play that playbook. Like that playbook must have that at its heart. And if you're you can't play a doomed. I mean, this is going to sound obvious, but you can't play a doomed who doesn't have a doom that is mm. approaching. Um, so I love the way that they kind of blend those and get you give you that flexibility in what the power actually is while rooting you in that story. And I think it's interesting that they couch it in the language of story as opposed because I think what it is doing is pretty similar functionally to what Thirsty Sword Lesbians is doing in terms of like, yeah, here here is what your character is doing and essential. Here's the central conflict in their lives because conflict is what creates story. But I think it's interesting that the language that they're using is is not concerned primarily with emotion the way that Thirsty Sword Lesbians is. But this is very much like here is here is the the story that you are playing out and the game is seeing how all those stories intersect and intertwine well and i think and i could be wrong on this um because i can only pull two examples from my brain immediately but like with the janus when you when you build your janus you also build your like civilian ties um and with like the bull who's a powerhouse you build two relational ties that are specific to that character, which are um, your rival and your love interest. I think they just call it love. But yes. Yeah. Um, and you're able to like switch those on a dime whenever you want as your character evolves. Um, but instead of having like a specific emotional arc um, that Thirsty Sword Lesbians has, each of these playbooks has built in a like, this is your tie to other people, not just players, but like mm-hmm. other NPCs, people that you need to make that are important to your character that you and your GM will play, etc. Um, and it kind of mechanizes that without asking those questions specifically. Yeah, from I haven't read Thirsty Sword Lesbians personally, but from your description, Percy, it strikes me that Thirsty Sword Lesbians playbooks are a little bit more internally directed in terms um, of like what's your in turn that that like central emotional conflict i mean in, whereas, in some ways what's mm-hmm. interesting about them for example i'll use the devoted as an example because i built one recently <laughs> um we'll talk about this more later but the the devoted um is the archetype of like a person who has pledged their life in service of something else some kind of cause or person that they believe in and it asks you in character creation to come up with three tenets of your devotion that you struggle the most to follow um the things that you are most easily tempted away from which is like pretty uh transparently like gm bait because there are like mechanical consequences for either like doing something in line with your devotion or doing something outside of your devotion. I I think the character creation of Thirsty Sword Lesbians does ask you to start very much with like you are you are your character and here is your character's world. And then next step, we'll do relationships and we'll see how this party is composed and what that what that does and builds a little bit of a shared history between you. But I think you are very much sort of starting as an island. Um, something that this mass conversation makes me think of actually uh, leads us quite nicely into the third game that we're using as a bit of a case study, which is Kids on Bikes. Um, the thing that is interesting to me about the way that Masks couches it its uh, playbooks in terms of story is that it reminds me very much of like superhero comics, 
Um, and I think one of the functions of like stock characters and archetypes is that it offers us access to cultural touchstones that we can draw on in order to make characters that feel interesting to explore or stories or conflicts that we want to engage with in the space of the game. Um, and kids on bikes, like explicitly, they don't use um, playbooks in the way that like Powered by the Apocalypse games use playbooks. And it, there are no like explicit like character classes in quite the same way but they were specifically refer to the sort of playbook function system in kids on bikes as tropes um so they're sort of like you can be the loner weirdo you can be the stoic professional you can be the brilliant mathlete um and sort of gives you what all of that might look like mechanically but i think it's interesting not only that they explicitly use the use the word trope but that they're sort of playing into like those awaken in me a ton of examples from like movies and TV and books of like, you know, I could play Katie Heron uh, from Mean Girls um, or I could be uh, Ali Sheedy's character from The Breakfast Club or whatever. Like you have things that you can sort of pull from in order to create your character. And I think that that is really exciting from a player perspective coming into a game, um, being able to like able to and encouraged to really specifically be like, oh, okay, here are all of these things that I have, all of these stories that I've connected to as a, as a person watching something, let me, you know, see what it feels like to embody those. Like, for example, when I played Thirsty Sword Lesbians recently, my character's devotion was to like a Robin Hood style gang of thieves and was a hundred percent developed from being able to have that cultural touchstone of like, Oh, like I know what Robin hood is and everybody else at the table knows what Robin hood is and knows exactly what I'm talking about when I say, Oh, this is what, yeah, this is, this is what I'm doing with my character. Yeah. What I find interesting about the, the kids on bikes tropes is that they do sort of start to pull you into that world that actually transcends different games and different, genres sometimes i think i think most of the ones kids on bikes offer are kind of rooted in that like 80s pulp um world but they're still you know they're they're broad enough that they can converse across games and across eras um Mm. and i i always find that really interesting um percy you i think earlier referenced the devoted in thirsty sword lesbians actually as a like paladin type of character that is that is like the shorthand that I use to think about yeah. it, although that's not entirely, I think, accurate to what it's trying to do. Yeah, I think it's interesting and in telling that the paladin of all the sort of like traditional fantasy D&D classes, which are not about relationships, is the one that does sort of make an appearance in this playbook because the paladin is traditionally a class that is built on a relationship. You know, the paladin in D&D does come with that relational baggage of you're devoted to a god or mm-hmm. in more recent editions of D&D you're devoted to like an ideal or a cause or whatever mm-hmm. that does give you those role playing hooks in a way that like you're a fighter you're good at fighting like it doesn't it doesn't provide uh we, I've been trying to figure out how to describe what like d20 style classes do as opposed to playbooks and i feel like usually they offer you tools that are like here are the things that your character can do or is good at but they don't generally give you as much scaffolding in terms of who your character is in the world 
Yeah, I I, th- I think a lot of the way that like hearkening back to Jay's tweet, a lot of what D&D and Pathfinder and Starfinder and all of these sort of D20 system games, like it's very focused on abilities, whereas like like in Kids on Bikes, most of character creation is deciding what motivates you and what you're afraid of and things like that. Like you are you are building the world also via character creation and you are. Yeah, it's 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 so much more about story than it is about like the things that your character is able to do. Although also like, yeah, just like abilities function a lot differently in these two sort of styles of games. Like I, yeah, you don't need to know what weapons your devoted is proficient with um, in thirsty sword lesbians, because there is no like explicit, like roll to swing a sword mechanic. But yeah, I very much view D20 character classes as like, here is what you are able to do as opposed to what relationship do you have with the world? Whereas like, yeah, in Thirsty Sword Lesbians, you're absolutely like, uh, what are the details of the like cloistered, isolated community that you come from? Or like, what are the little demons that you correspond with in your day-to-day life or things like that? I want to know more about that last one, but we'll we'll save that for when we do Thirsty Sword Lesbians on the pod. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, and I think going back to... This is a conversation we had last year, but so much of Apocalypse World and PBTA games seem to be a push back against the D20 wargaming position. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's about like making meaningful choice and meaningful characters and having roles that are based in your character and not in how good you swing a sword. That actually makes me think of something else, which is I think a lot of like one of the chief criticisms that I see leveled at like D&D in particular, but D20 games writ large as well, is that they are like, quote unquote, power fantasies in which like, sure, you are encouraged to choose like your character's flaws. And sure, like there is the ever looming like a chance that you might not succeed at the thing you're trying to do. But what's interesting to me about all of these things that we have sort of like these three games that we've talked about is that they very much build in like here is like a horrible thing that your character has endured or here is a horrible fate that they're moving towards or here is like a thing that limits them in some way. Like it is, I think a lot of these games are sort of positioning character creation as a way to be like, okay, like let's build conflict or failure or something in that vein into the root of your character because that is more dramatically interesting than like how many swords do you own i actually i i kind of want to pivot us into talking about blades in the dark because i'm having a little bit of a brainwave in our conversation here yeah. um and i'm realizing that i i think part of what we're dancing around is that to some extent these game the the differences in these systems of like ability you know the D, the d20 like what are your character's abilities compared to the like thirsty sword lesbians? Or even if we want to go farther, looking at like no dice, no masters games, which are almost wholly about, you know, who is your character in the world is a question, not so much of story, but actually of how interested in the internal and the interpersonal and the subjective the game itself is. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting about that is that Blades in the Dark, and I would actually argue Apocalypse World 2, settle in a kind of middle ground there, I would posit, because they are pulling on genres where the interpersonal 
is like dangerous and tenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. stories and Blades in the Dark in particular. I, It's interesting. I've been listening to some other Blades in the Dark actual plays and like, I, I think because just maybe just of human nature or because of like what people are kind of primed to want by games like D&D, uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of Blades in the Dark games that end up steering toward heroism i know there's even a gang playbook that was i don't know if it's third party or not but that was introduced after the release of blades in the dark called vigilantes Mm -hmm. that is like oh do you actually want to be like good guys here's a playbook to like help you do that but the core of the the core of the system is like very amoral like very uh you know criminal and because of that the playbooks for both apocalypse world and blades in the dark allow you to support you developing relationships but also are about what you offer to the team in a sort of pragmatic what can we get accomplished way and it's not quite abilities in the same abstract way that it is in a d20 system but i think both of those worlds are less in less inherently interested in like individual subjectivity than in you know you have a job to do whether that job is robbing someone or staying alive in this apocalyptic well actually world. i would argue that apocalypse world is not about abilities but what material things do you have yeah um which is which says a lot about about the world like what are the resources you have access to yeah, like the hard holder, the hard holder has, you know, a settlement and it has this gang and blah, blah, blah. Or the battle babe has this weapon and this weapon and like all of these things. Like it's very much about material things, which says a lot about the fact that Apocalypse World is a game about material scarcity. Like I would argue, yeah, it's its chief concern is is what simulating material scarcity and how you deal with that situation Whereas, yeah, Thirsty Sword Lesbians is is a game about about relationships. Um, so, of course, it's character creation is sort of positioning you to have an interesting character to play off of other people's characters with. Well, and um, going back to that Jay Dragon tweet uh, in, in speaking about like different ways to frame these questions, um, one of the follow ups in that thread from Jay was, do you ever think about how Apocalypse World makes playbooks by asking what tools do you have to survive, while Dream Askew asks what relationship do you have to the commune, and makes the world feel very different despite them being the same setting? Mm-hmm. Um, so these different like focuses on what is it about this question that makes your character unique. Um, but what I also think is is nice is that like setting aside the question of like giving you information about what the game is concerned with when it comes to the world of the game. I think it also gives players a really, really good entry point to say, okay, here's where I am locating myself within this. Um, and here is a solid jumping off point for me to work from because I know I have a sense of what my character wants, or at the very least, I have a sense of where my character is coming from and what my character's lived experience might be uh, and how I might feel about the people around me. And that's like more than enough to sort of start with as you're entering a game. So I feel like the fact that a lot of these are sort of leaning on familiar 
tropes and archetypes not only tells us sort of who we are in relation to the world, but also gives us a way to like embody that truthfully and easily, as opposed to like, I think in a D20 system, you kind of have to work, you have to, you have to put in additional work to sort of give your character a reason to be there and give your character a motivation and, and all of these things. Like I think inherently, like I'm a ranger who loves to shoot things with my bow and arrow and I track animals through the woods is not like a compelling like thing to base a story around. Um, you have to like layer backstory and things like that on top of that. And we will skirt the backstory question, <laughs> but <laughs> the contentious backstory question. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think like that is the value in this TTRPG context of like, because I would argue that a lot of playbooks and, and, things of that nature, particularly in these sort of more fiction oriented games are playing on tropes and archetypes and stock characters um, that we might recognize from media or history or whatever. Yeah. And in the case of Blades in the Dark, I think those stock characters, which I think is a fair thing to call them, are coming from our kind of collective uh, library, mental and cultural library of like the heist movie or or the heist story we'll say writ large so you know thinking about the characters in our podcast all of them are defined mechanically by what they do in this team of criminals so milos is the spider that's the you know i i would call it kind of the the brains is maybe the wrong word, but the spider is, I feel like, the one that's kind of like kingpin in the Marvel universe or something like that. The spider's the one who doesn't necessarily get as directly involved in everything, but has all the connections and makes all the plans. And then you have uh, Wick, the leech, who is, you know, the technician demolitions expert that's one that pops up in a lot of like hollywood heist movies you know in i was gonna say oceans 11 but actually i think the entire oceans franchise <laughs> throughout <laughs> in the remake you have uh don Cheadle's character whose name i'm forgetting but is like their explosives expert um in the films uh you have uh gabe the cutter who's the muscle whatever that looks like there's that that is sometimes in heist so stories and sometimes less so depending on sort of the tone um and you have all these different characters that you can sort of immediately see where they fit into the clicking gears of the team um and you actually see these specific roles show up again and again and again in different heist uh narratives I have a brief tangent, which I, pro I promise will be will be because I've been thinking about this a lot with my home D&D group, which is that like, so I'm starting a game of Starfinder soon. And one of the things that is cool about that system is that um, you similar to D&D 3.5, there are a lot of skills that you can only try to do if you have experience or proficiency or training in that skill, which stops the issue that I think a lot of D and D groups run into of like, Oh, like everybody can attempt to do this thing. So we will all just try. And there is no like specialization and there's no specific niche for people to do. But I think a cool thing about this sort of function in blades in the dark, um, in the sort of archetype character playbook thing is that 
yeah, everybody has a niche in like you are building in that everybody has a special thing that they can do and a specific function. And that is baked into the way that you build characters and mechanics. So I think it is also creating a situation where like you are encouraged to work together, not even encouraged, you are required to work together because everybody, you can only do your specific thing and you need the team in order to accomplish like things that are not your specific thing. Well, and uh, as we've talked about before with Blades in the Dark, it's specifically about teamwork. Like it incentivizes working together in concert, assisting one another, um, and also like relying on your friends to do things for you. Well, and you're not only determining like what is what is my character's uh, archetypal role in this heist gang. Also, what is our collective crew's archetypal role in the criminal underworld in which we are operating? Are we selling things? Are we murderers? Are we, you know, roughing people up for money? Are we making deals? Like what? Yeah. What what role are we as a collective group serving and how does that inform our characters and how do our characters inform the way that we go about that? I flip back and forth on whether the the gang like playbooks are archetypes or not, because there's a part of me that's like, well, that's like those are jobs, (laughs) illegal jobs. But um, (laughs) but uh, I was going to say the thing that's interesting to me about these archetypes or these stock characters is that in in other media like in hollywood movies they often start to bleed into character tropes as well as like jobs and sometimes in troubling ways i watched um so i I watched the early 2000 remakes of both oceans 11 and the italian job uh, before we recorded this and I was like oh this is interesting there's like the demolitions man archetype in both of these films which is also one of the like larger comic relief roles and is also the only black person in either of the films and I'm just like hmm that's interesting <laughs> and troubling and I I'm curious whether we see the same thing happening in tabletop games whether and whether that's actually baked in to some tabletop games. I feel like I haven't seen that so much because they tend to be either one or the other. You know, it tends to be either what is your functional job or what is your like interpersonal role in the group. Um I also see a lot of language in TTRPG handbooks, and obviously I can't speak for like every TTRPG handbook, but a lot of them are really clear about like, here are all of the possible ways that this playbook might manifest as a character. Um, like here, here are, for example, like the language that Todd quoted from the Masks handbook earlier is like, here are all of the possible like ways that this could appear. Um, like, I, I think a lot of TTRPGs are pretty intentional about like trying to avoid like this is the character that you can make. And like, this is, this is the, the thing that you have to do. But I also think that like, because of the sort of way that a lot of, at least indie TTRPGs position themselves in the broader industry, like I think there is an explicit or maybe not explicit, but at the very least implicit invitation to like see these archetypes and stereotypes and then subvert them through gameplay. Like I I think there is, they are giving you the tools to say, okay, like here, here is this like legible familiar thing. How do you want to play with it? 
um, and riff on it is is how I would sort of interpret the way that this manifests, at least in TTRPGs. Although certainly there are stereotypes and and all of these things. For example, like the monk class in D anD D is absolutely in and of itself a ster- kind of a stereotype. Yeah, and I think it's actually I think that's actually harder to do in games where the focus is less on the interpersonal um, because that, well, because that means the focus isn't on it. You know what I mean? So when the concern is, and I, I think that is probably a big part of why in Hollywood, for example, we, you don't see as much of that questioning um, is because if you're reading the character as like largely functional in a heist movie, for instance, then the then these stock characters or these stereotypes become a shorthand way to like fill in the blanks well because functions are dehumanizing yeah absolutely yeah and and framing your character in terms of like what is my emotional journey is inherently very humanizing yeah this is maybe opening up a well we're like transitioning into talking about movies and theater and and other sorts of storytelling so i i guess i think one of the things this one of the questions this raises given the way we've just talked about how these functions can be dehumanizing is like, what is the value of stock characters? And back, way back in episode 17, when we talked with James Patefield, we talked a little bit about um, his background with Commedia dell'arte and improvisation um, and how that can be useful in devising theater. And we didn't go in depth in it at the time, but I will say, I think that that, that one of the useful things about stock characters that is also true of playbooks is that it gives you a quick and easy way into the fiction, both for the audience who, if they're familiar with the genre or the style that you're working in, will kind of recognize the setup and therefore need less explanation, um, but also for performers like James, I have a, a background in Commedia dell'arte and you you see these kind of stock characters in the masks of Commedia dell'arte uh, very easily. And one of the things that made that improv- improvised art form so possible, um, I was just reading uh, recently about how apparently there was a uh, request by a bishop to one of the biggest Commedia dell'arte troops in the 17th century to put on an original play and they uh, did it in like two hours from you know writing to rehearsing to putting on the final uh, product Um, and one of the things that made that possible is that you would have the kind of training to know if I'm playing if my mask is Arlecchino then going into any Uh, scenario, I know what my relationship to Pantalone is or to Brigella is. And the details of that might change. Like, is Brigella an innkeeper and I'm a rich man's servant? Or is Brigella a cook and I'm the sous chef? Like, the details of it might change, but the social relationship is consistent. And that means that it becomes much easier to like jump in without as much preparation and just hit the ground running. It is not a given that we are defining games this way. But if you if if you were to define a game as like a collaborative storytelling endeavor or a shared imagination endeavor, I think it's really important to have sort of firm places from which to begin, particularly ones that are legible and recognizable to probably everybody at the table to some extent so that 
you know, you just are all sort of understanding like, okay, like this is, yeah, here, here is a sort of sketch of what, of, of the place that I am coming from as my character. And now I know where you're coming from as your character. And we can sort of play with that and let things change, as you said. But like, at the very least, we sort of like, can all get on board with what you're trying to do. Well, and I think that this, um, this like playbook stock character idea allows for like richer, deeper character conflict earlier. Um, mm-hmm. that something like a D20 system doesn't really allow for because your characters aren't defined by your class in something like D&D. And so you'll probably spend the first four or five sessions trying to like articulate what it is your character wants, where they're coming from, and what they need, and like how they want to get those things, um, while other people are also trying to articulate those things. Whereas in something like Masks or Blades in the Dark, you can jump in with clearly these are the things that I'm into. Clearly these are the the types of situations that I ascribe to be in. And you can create, and I don't mean just like negative, like party butting their head against each other conflict, but conflict that like puts two characters against one another in terms of ideals mm-hmm. and how they move forward from that. Cause I think that's that friction is where you get interesting storytelling if all of the characters are all on board for exactly the same sort of adventure, that's cool. Um, but there probably won't be a lot of character growth there. And if you're like gritty vagabond, um, has to like call into question, um, what their ethics are with your like dewy eyed, you know, ray of sunshine, uh, who has just started adventuring like that, creates interesting situations that allow for um, exciting storytelling possibilities. Whereas like, as we've said, if all of you are playing Batman, it's probably a really <laughs> boring and annoying story to tell. I'm going to write a TTRPG called Oops, All Batmans. Oops, All um, Batmans. And everybody plays Batman. Um, but I think it's a testament to the way that this can work as a jumping off point that like in the Thirsty Sword Lesbians game I played recently, like none of us at the table had met each other before. I'm pretty certain, but we were all able to come in as our characters with these very specific like relationships to the world that we had. And we're able to really like succinctly articulate to each other because of the way that the playbooks are structured and immediately build character relationships. And like, I won't spoil anything, but yeah, like, there was a little bit of tension because of different backgrounds. And there was a little bit of like, oh, like we know that we have common ground because of this. So we can go have a sword fight for fun at the fancy party or whatever. But yeah, something that strikes me about what you said, Nick, too, is that in Commedia dell'arte and other sort of theatrical sort of stock character constructions, um, they're defined by relationships, which is what we've sort of been like circling around as perhaps I would say the more ideal way to go about it than like, like the, like the characters in Committed Dillarte are not like, this is the doctor. Well, there is a doctor, but like, he's not, he's not, he's not defined by like only doing doctoring things. Um, Like it gives you information about his personality and the, and the way that he approaches the world and the way that he interacts with other people. It's not just like the doctor and the baker and the whatever. Um, Like it's moving beyond occupation. Well, and I think something that struck me from what what Todd was saying is now I'm I'm beginning to question and try to run through different playbooks from different games in my head. 
and wonder, is it actually, I think it is about relationships, yes, but actually what stock characters often give you and what I think the more, to me, um, the more like interesting and generative of inter of intercharacter relationships give you are a what you can like do which D classes also give you but then b kind of more importantly what you want or need and what i'm realizing is that of course that works well because wants and needs are interpersonal mm-hmm. um you know they they automatically put you into relationship with other people if yeah, we're looking at these stock characters as a combination of like want or of, of let's just say need and ability. Uh, Arlecchino, for example, is always hungry. Like Arlecchino needs food. Arlecchino also is like not in a high social position. So what does he do? He's always going to attach himself to another like person who has the ability to get him food in exchange for service. And he might attach himself to as many of those people as possible. And now you have uh, the servant of two masters. You know, that like that's that's how that kind of generates conflict and uh, tension and excitement is rooting a character in something that they want very desperately or need very badly. Um, And then saying, "Okay, but uh, perhaps unlike in a D20 game, like you can't just go out and like do that thing. Yeah. Like you can't go get it automatically. You have to be in relationship to attempt to uh, fulfill that. Yeah. And I think we sort of gestured towards this earlier, but it is, yeah, good to name just like being aware of when you're playing with stock characters and archetypes, which I think has a lot of benefits, just where you might be leaning on stereotype or leaning on, on things that are actually like maybe doing more harm than good. But I think as I said before, the TTRPG space is a really kind of fertile one for like investigating and subverting these kinds of things. Like I can only speak explicitly for my experience, but I know it is a broader experience of many trans people that like, or at least trans masculine people that like TTRPGs are a really, really good place to like figure out what masculinity means to you and like mm-hmm. really break down these sort of cultural inheritances of, of what we are told is masculinity and like, see what actually is there. Like, I think the TTRPG space provided everybody else at the table is cool with you doing this can be really, really good to like investigate and subvert stereotypes. You just have to be sort of proactive about figuring out like, okay, like where am I, where am I leaning on something that maybe needs to be troubled a little bit? Yeah. And I think just to name the elephant in the room, I, I want to stress that I think in theater too, stock characters are very much a neutral thing. They're great for performers um, and they give audiences easy way ins. But, you know, I mean, first off, Commedia dell'arte itself has its own like problematic baggage with regard to both gender and um, and ethnicity, particularly like anti-Semitic tropes. But also, you know, you see stock characters in Commedia dell'arte. Yes. In vaudeville. Yes. In modern sitcoms. Yes. Which can have their own issues, um, but also in like minstrelsy, you know, m- like traditional minstrel performances by both black and white performers relied on racialized stereotypes um, embedded in stock characters. And I, you know, there are certainly experts on minstrelsy, I think particularly black um, minstrel performance who have troubled the 
the idea that that is all that it was, and I'm not expert enough to speak to that, but that was certainly a large part of it, particularly when white performers were engaging in minstrelsy. So I do think, like Percy said, it is good to be cognizant of these risks, while also, I think, for people who have struggled to find a way into the like interpersonal and the really exciting like storytelling possibilities of role-playing games who maybe see them more as war games um, and lacking that personal touch, I think playbooks and stock characters can be a really good and generative way to get into that aspect of things. Yeah, I think it's just about viewing them as possibilities for your relationship to the world and to other people as opposed to kinds of characters or kinds of people in the world, if that distinction makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. Check out cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Our city is much like yours. Skyscrapers reaching towards the clouds, trains roaring on subway tracks, people bustling through their lives. But there is one major difference. I think I'm just going to run at him. Yeah, 10, 12 tendrils of flame just burst out of my chest at the guy. I figured we already established I don't care if you're a hero. I'm not even really sure if I'm a hero. Clara punches him in the face. But I need you to be heroes in your own right. Moon Harbor is an epicenter of powered individuals. From villains to heroes to everything in between, these super beings strive to shape the world for better or for worse. And often caught in the crossfire are the teenagers and young adults who try to balance their heroic identities with their mundane lives. This is supposed to be fun. We will gab, we will share some secrets, but like, no pressure. Yeah, I'm totally kissing him. (laughs) (laughs) And this panel absolutely needs to be like sparks flying everywhere. Make it cheesy. These are the stories of the young heroes of our city. From flights over busy streets to the farthest reaches of space, Moon Harbor Heroes and our spinoff line, Moon Harbor Extended, are Masks A New Generation actual play podcasts that explore the intersection of responsibility to the world versus responsibility to oneself. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts or on Twitter at Moon Harbor Cast.